0: about it deep conversations with Uli bear on big ideas and great books I'm really thrilled today to welcome Professor Charlie Louth so first of all Charlie thank you so much for making time to speak with me today on the think about it podcast
1: no, not' too, I'm very pleased to, yeah. you.
0: I just want to introduce you for a second to our listeners and we're going to be talking about Rilke today, a poet in whose work I have great interest. And you have just published a really fascinating book on You're associate professor of German and fellow of Queen's College at Oxford University of England. I'm speaking to you right now. You're in England, I presume. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, Queen's indeed. Yeah. So you're a specialist on 18th, 19th, 20th, Century poetry, mostly German poetry. You've translated uh, Hölderlin's letters. You've translated Mm -hmm. Rilke's famous letters to a young poet and his letters to a young worker. You've also written a book on Hölderlin and translation, edited books on other German language poets, including Nelly Sachs. And you've more recently published um, this book with Oxford University Press, Rilke, The Life of the Work. So Mm -hmm. just Thank you so much for taking a time out of what looks like a very busy
1: <laughs> life to me. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's no busier than yours, Oli, really, but yeah. It's,
0: and 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 I I really I was excited to be able to speak to you. And as you know, I have a great interest myself in Rilke, and then the podcast mm-hmm. is really about literature and books in general. And I'm really happy to have readers that range from everywhere, from high school students to people who are returning to books they read as high school students, maybe 80 years ago. And I literally had listeners who said I read something like this uh, 72 years ago. Rilke is one of these poets who has this perennial interest and fascination outside of the German language Mm. world um, and in translation and I would be curious to start out maybe by asking you where did your interest start that results in these beautiful translations and now in this really incredible book, which I really admire. And I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this book, which, which was published by Oxford University Press. So, Where did you start getting interested in Wilke?
1: Well, uh, I mean, it goes back quite a long way. I mean, I've, I've always been, well, when I say always, you know, since I was, since I was a teenager, I've always been very interested in, in, in poetry, poetry in English mostly. And then, you know, very soon, if you're interested in poetry, you come across Hilke as a as a name, you know, very quickly. I think I very first heard Hulika actually in France, but in an English translation, and it was the Leishman um, Penguin International Poets. Yeah, I think a lot of people first came across Huluk in those translations. But nowadays, one doesn't necessarily think they're, they're the best that you can. They're very odd translation in some ways. So I mean, I just came across them there, and then I really I knew a, f- a few people. I got to meet, I met some people, people at about that time actually also in France who were very keen readers of Hulika including a friend who who wrote a novel who then, which has the eighth elegy sort of printed as a kind of sort of epilogue to the whole thing. It was really just that way, I don't know. I mean, I, and then I I studied French and German at university and then I did Röke then, I chose to do Röke then. And I suppose I've been reading them ever since. I mean, the, the book has taken a long time to, to write. I mean, you know, more than 20 years, really. That's actually interesting. You say it took a long, it doesn't read that way. It's, oh, that's good.
0: Yeah, it's very informed and I, Maybe for our listeners, we both have a kind of interest in Rilke, which exceeds mm. an academic interest. We're not just yeah. interested as an academic writer. Rilke is not usually the writer to be pounded and say, oh, another poet, I have to learn what this poet means in the tradition or how that poet works. Most people mm. are touched, touched by Rilke in a way that goes beyond the academic interest. And I feel that what I really like about your book, and you can maybe tell us a little bit about how you conceived this book, which is not just chronological, but really focuses on what you call the life of the work. Mm. What I like about the book that it seems to continually start afresh and every chapter says, I'm going to look at these poems. Now I'm going to look at this poem. I'm going to look at this now. There there doesn't seem to be a kind of ambition to be exhaustive, and it doesn't also ever read exhausted. It feels to me very lively and it felt yeah. more like you read it you wrote it pretty quickly that's what it's right. in a good way okay. the best, in the best possible way
1: <laughs> well i think it would be true to say i wrote it quickly in the sense i didn't revise very much i don't write very quickly but on the other hand, i don't go back over what i write very much but i think it, i was quite deliberately i mean it's partly just to do with an approach to poems in general so i think that one should have tried to poem, approach poems f- freshly even if one knows them well each time one reads them, that that has to be, in some sense, as if for the first time, really, especially with a poet like Rieke, who's, who's very much working towards opening up possibilities and, and making you kind of see the world in a slightly different way. And if you come to them with already a big pre- preconception of what you're going to find there, then that is to go against the kind of poems they are, I think. But then also, I was, and it's, it's an academic book, I think, but it's also, I'm, I was very conscious writing it that, with lots of exceptions, but nevertheless, there are exceptions. If you read a re- writing about a poem, you only get somehow, you don't really get, you just get a little aspect of what's going on. And of course, I can't say, I can't write about everything that's going on in a poem either, but, I, but I'm sort of trying to kind of talk about the experience of reading a poem and what it can sort of make happen, what it or, what, what possibilities it can kind of throw up and sort of make real, if you like. I mean, Rilke himself, I mean, I start off with this in the book, actually, but Rilke himself did write a few poems about reading poems, mm-hmm. and about, or about reading, anyway. And they're all very, very interesting because they they talk about not so much the actual reading itself, although that is part of what his focus is on, but they talk about the moment when you look up from the book and so there's this sort of transition from the immersion in the poem and then the sort of coming back to the world around you. And it's in that transitional moment where you're sort of partly still in the text, but but on the way out of it, that that's where the potential that lies in reading lies, I think, for Rieke. And so I, sp- I try to stay true to that, more or less, um, you know, in, in the reading of the whole work, pretty much. I mean, obviously not every poem, but the whole span of Rieke's work. Because I think that if you don't do that, you're, you're not really We're not really staying true to what Rilke wanted these poems to do or or what the poems do do, in fact.
0: Can we stay with this for a moment, this moment of looking up from a poem? And I'm curious what, because you sort of have that experience in many poems, Mm. what what the reader actually goes through at that moment. You're reading a poem and some Rilke that you talk about is poems about hydrangeas or flamingos or carousel or Mm. a unicorn or... Something all these themes which are somewhat pre-modern to us, kind of Mm -hmm. weirdly, weirdly out of some mythic time. And yet Mm -hmm. you read them and there's a phrase sometimes where you you, would use we describe this nicely, it's also a kind of bodily response. You look up for a moment, and it's as if in those moments you find yourself in a slightly different space than when you started reading a
1: poem. Yeah. I think it is spatial. So I mean, when you read a poem, especially a poem like one of Rüdiger's, which especially from the Neuge Dichter, actually from the new poems, which have this kind of really quite intricate syntax and they demand real focus from the reader. They're actually quite difficult poems or they're not often thought of as difficult poems in you know, Rüdiger's sort of criticism, but they are actually, this, they're full of sort of obstacles and, and complications. So it demands a huge amount of, of kind of concentration and yeah, bodily involvement, I think. I mean, you, as you read them, you... You can always feel the syntax unfolding simultaneously on the page and sort of in you as you kind of retrace the unfolding of the poem. So you have this kind of huge involvement, which I think I think probably is one of the reasons why Ruka has got this sort of great following, actually, that the poems demand more of you, in a sense of more aspects of yourself than lots of poems do. And so, yeah, you're kind of drawn in, you almost have to become part of the poem in order to read it. I think it's it's a sort of like a like, bit like breathing really. so there's a sort of concentration involved and then you look up and there's a sort of that concentration opens out out, out and with it. certain possibilities seem to open out. But you can't really say what they are exactly. I, think, I don't think they don't have a content perhaps. it's more just a form. I mean, another way of thinking about it is that I think there's a kind of um, sort of um yeah transitional movement that you have to participate in. And then it's almost as if you, you build up a kind of momentum when you get to the end of the poem, then you kind of carry on outwards, beyond it, back, sort of back into life in a way, or, or it's not back into, because you haven't been out of it, but it's sort of into it with a new kind of sort of impulse. But again, it's hard to talk about because it doesn't really have a particular content.
0: Let me ask um, you something, what you just said, which is, I think, mm-hmm. really at the heart of what we are trying to just, to say. that you're not taken out of life. You don't go no. back into life. And I think yeah. that's a very important thing for people. Initially, people think Rilke, a German difficult poet. Yeah. But actually, there's, first of all, a certain kind of pulling you in that looks a little bit simpler than other poetry, although it's very complex. Once you start hmm. translating, you realize how complex those poems yeah. are because you can't capture a lot of it. And the early Rilke is so, there's so many internal rhymes, external rhymes, it just keeps on sort of reinforcing its own patterns yeah. it, be, it grows on you but what yeah. you just said is you're not immersed in the poem absorbed by the poem and then mm. you look up and say oh i'm sitting in this room and I, or i'm sitting in the park or i'm sitting on the train you actually in life and then deeper in life yes right. exactly. and, th- and this yeah. is really important i think because yeah. Milka is. and then we can later talk about the elegies and the angels mm. and the sonnets which gives people a sense, oh, this is about some metaphysical realm beyond us. This is about transcendence. Mm. It's never about that, it seems. It's no. about that we don't have an option to leave
1: this life, mm. but we have an option to go more deeply into it, which is strange. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you there. I, mean, I think I think that is exactly what Luca might well have said himself, really, and that that is what the, the effect that the poems have or, or certainly can have. I mean, another way of thinking about maybe another way of putting the same thing is that, you know, what Hooker undoubtedly also does as a writer is he he's, extre- he's quite supremely kind of sensitive and also expressive. So he, he has a, a keener sense than, than a lot of people at least as to sort of how it feels to be in a particular time and place. And then he has an amazing language with which to sort of turn that into words. And, of course, in turning it into words, he then deepens it precisely, that feeling, because he... it's suddenly given more, more structure, more definition, and you understand it better in some way, I think. But then, of course, that process always becomes a version, I think, of understanding that all experience is sort of transient. So, you know, when you try and pin down what it is that you're experiencing in a particular moment, You can deepen that, but then in the end you come to a point where it's sort of fleeing from you again and escaping you. But what's incredible about Rika, I think, is that doesn't become, usually anyway, it doesn't become a sort of nostalgic or sense of loss. It's more a sense of reality, I think. So these things passing from us, that's what life is made up of. That doesn't mean to say that life is escaping us, that we're not somehow losing something. We understand something about the nature of loss, I suppose, but which is actually just another side of life I suppose
0: what you just said I think is to me a central probably to me as a reader I have my personal reading the central question what you just said that we are kind of led into the secret of the transience of life which Wilkins says in many letters Mm -hmm. we we constantly distract ourselves it's too unbearable of course to think that things will not last then he gives us these, Mm -hmm. and then I'm, I'm sketching the kind of arc of your book, which is not really an arc, but it's you work mm. chronologically. And as you know, I'm really interested in the kind of middle where he's sort trans- of this transition that other people have talked about. So let's say he takes us into a situation, as you said, into a place, mm. into the experience of being in a cathedral or at a, in a particular the afternoon, having a cup of tea. It's all, it's never usually a grand moment. Sometimes they're no. very small moments. He mm. takes us into this moment with incredible care and specificity And then he lets us realize this will not last, although I gave you such an intense or immediate experience of it. And as Mm. you said, that realization is, well, this will not last, does not lead to a sense of regret or grief in the sense of nothing lasts, we will die. So he keeps you in that moment and then he Mm. deepens that moment by saying, It's even deeper to us precisely because here we can see how transience is part of us. For people who know and and love Rilke, really, Mm. that makes some sense. For philosophically or existentially, this makes very little sense. Because, you know what I mean? Why would we not be someone bereft or... Mm. grieving or mourning the fact that this, will, this something does not last, it just, especially just after Rilke gave us this heightened experience.
1: No, you're right. It is mysterious. If you have a collection like particularly the Zonetta and also the Sonnets orpheus then you have a sort of, you know, you, each sonnet does roughly what you've described, but then, of course, a, a, another sonnet comes along and, and sort of does it again, and it's like in a different way. And so I suppose the moment of sort of feeling bereft or nostalgic is sort of replaced by another deeper realisation of sort of what life feels like when you're really when you've really got a keen sense for it when you're not being distracted or thinking of other things so it's sort of repeatable i suppose that's the thing and that is quite important and i suppose that's why people go back to it's quite extraordinary i mean that we didn't mention any statistics or anything and i don't have any proper statistics but Someone said the other day, and I'm sure they're right, that, I mean, Rick has read in English. He's read more in America than any other any other English poet. And there are something like 15 translations of the elegies available now. I mean, it's crazy, really. Mm. I wonder whether something we just
0: said is what you said, one of the reasons why people go back to it, because you're given yeah. a somewhat heightened sense of experience. Mm. I think sometimes there is a reminder, which I appreciate, that Wilke reminds us that even the most fleeting, banal, um, insignificant circumstance can have a kind of depth for us if we pay attention. There's always a kind of attentiveness. Yeah. Yeah. His apprenticeship with Rodin, which always makes me laugh because Rodin said, get out of my way, go, <laughs> go, to, the, go to the Jardin des Plantes, look at some animals. And, yes. and, and, and I'm probably making this up entirely from my mm. memories of the letters, but then mm. Wilke comes back and Rodin said, what what do you do? Look three hours, go back, look for eight hours. You have to look at everything yeah. for it. And so Wilke does this kind of long immersion in the world. Yeah. That is nice for us because we are, of course, you know, not always capable of that. And then mm. when we lose that, then I think why Wilke go back because he doesn't end up saying either, oh, we should celebrate this. Now we are better people, deeper human beings, have gained some moral edge on anybody. Nor mm. does he say? You have to grieve this loss, and that's what no. is a kind of you can return over and over. And your book is so nice, I think, because you seem to arrive at every poem anew. You don't feel, oh, mm. I figured this out. He did this in the new poems. He did this, and yeah. He did this, and no. oh, let me go to the next one. There's no progression. There's no progression. In a strange way, also means maybe there isn't loss at the end of something. So the reading becomes more of a circular experience of going back and remembering. Oh he took me into this experience now it's gone but the poem allows you to go back to it
1: that is very much and I'm glad you say it is like that because that's what I did want to try and do in the book not sort these poems out and right. kind of put them put them in separate you know in their right boxes but just to try and let them breathe i suppose and see what see what's there and obviously, there'd be different things there for different people. But I think I just did feel quite strongly, and I still do, actually, that, that quite a lot of the readings of Röke, again, you know, with exceptions, they, they just don't give a very good account of all that's going on when you read a Röke poem or when you read a poem, even. Right. Uh, and particularly that sort of physical involvement and, and that way that you're you're compelled to, as I said before, almost become the poem in, in your in your way of sort of tracing through yeah. what's actually happening on the page. And I suppose you know that's that's a particular kind of experience. It's a kind of aesthetic experience, which I think Wilke thought was was extremely important. And that takes us back to the poems about reading that I didn't say before. Is that there? Well, I think they suggest is that for him, reading is a is a particular domain of experience which has potent, sort of possibilities in it, which other kinds of experience don't really have.
0: And what you say and the explain in the book on what Wilke does often as a kind of sleight of sleight of hand what you call an aesthetic experience, Rilke then swaps out a term and it's suddenly, or for him at the same moment, existential and a decision about life. So what you're describing when he talks about the reading experience, being Mm. immersed in a poem, being left by the poem in a state Mm. kind of of suspension or sort of thinking you're kind of gasping at the end of the poem because there's often a turn or the poem concludes in an unexpected way and you're feeling, wait, I was taken somewhere, but where am I now? So And Rilke describes this in his letters and prose lots of times. Mm. And then he switches categories completely. It's not about a poem, about poetry, about art. It's about life, life, life. And and this is really interesting to me because your book is called The Life of the Work. That this term life for Rilke is sometimes used, I think, in a way to describe what you're saying, an aesthetic experience of reading. Mm. And that's why it has this incredible urgency yeah.
1: So he's not a removed poet where it's a bit. No, hard, no, not at all. Right? No, no. I mean, you know, of course, you know, reading a book is or whatever reading a poem is not something which happens outside life. It happens right in the middle of life, and sort of in some ways that intensifies what one might get out of life otherwise. I mean, you know, if you read Hinkler's letters, then he's never really talking. He doesn't talk about art very much, actually, or, or, or no. poetry, hardly ever about poetry, I and mean, he's not. That's not he. He talks all the time about life, though, <laughs> um, right. and and a lot of his letters are, you know, especially the ones to. Uh, Luanda Salomir and to his wife, but but all of them really, they're they're completely concerned about how to get one's life right, what one has to do to actually sort of get through something which is not somehow I suppose authentic or quite complete, but to sort of live a better life. And for him, it's pretty clear that that most of the time is is the same thing as as writing. But what it means in more general terms is that there isn't really a distinction to be made between a kind of aesthetic experience and uh, whatever the opposite is going to be, a kind of real experience. They're both versions of one another.
0: And I like this when he says yeah. how to live your life correctly or in the right mm. way. And, and there's some, I think, us to a young poet and other things, like mm. okay, it's very funny descriptions Mm. when he talks about himself he's always the eternal student always failing there's Mm. never and there's never any accomplishment and the letters are very charming because ever so often Wilke will say of course i can only say all of this because i have no idea myself i'm i can't handle anything at all and there's also Mm. the, the staged helplessness with all of his donors he says oh i don't know how to do this could you, would you mind maybe, could you just send me food for the next week and furnish this apartment and also <laughs> yeah, send me yeah. travel? Or, the kind of incompetence in daily things, which is completely staged, I think, in certain ways. Yes,
1: yes. yeah. No but good. there's
0: something about learning life for him as a project. You can actually, yes. and that's why Let Us To your Poet, have this program, mm. this didactic dimension. You can actually yeah. learn to live your life better.
1: Yes, but but to learn to live one life doesn't mean to find the right technique and just apply it. It means sort of the opposite, really. It means yeah. <laughs> always starting from the beginning and never quite knowing for sure. I mean, he hates certainty, I think, really. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, that can have a negative side, but it can also have a very positive side, that, you, you know, life is sort of, yeah, open. What it means, how you do it, is something that is never really allowed to kind of settle into kind of a fixed form. And similarly, the poems, they, they manage to be you can read a poem and, and then you can read it again. I mean, any good poem, really, it's never going to do the same thing on each right. reading.
0: It's interesting when you think, you mentioned this very briefly, and I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure you're going to it at all, but there's a German reception of Rilke, which I'm not as deeply familiar with as I should be, but there was a long period of dismissing Rilke as yeah. an athlete, as, feat, as yeah. also a feat. It starts with Bertolt Brecht and Thomas Mann, yes. who are, who yeah. are just, who just filled with this beautiful jealousy and rage and say, why is this poet Mm. writing to these teenage girls and fancy ladies and more successful than we are? And then Blecht grudgingly acknowledges, okay, he's a genius. And Thomas Mann grudgingly acknowledges. But it goes then to the the German reception is that, and this is an important point, I think, that this is all a deception. This is all artifice. This is the play of language. And... The critic, Paul mm. Demand, who did the introduction for the Gallimard edition of the yeah. French translation, which is a beautiful mm. essay, he says at the end of this essay, it's a promise based on a lie. And Wilke knows what we just described, that you could actually be more mm. deeply in life. It's just deception. It's the play of language on the surface, etc. Demand yeah. De then says, and see, proof is that Wilke ultimately gave up on German. And starts writing in French, and give because he couldn't deliver this yeah. sense of living more deeply, or more—the mm. word he wouldn't have used—that I would use as more authentically, which was a corrupted word now. But it's mm. interesting. There's a whole set of people who also distrust this project, I think, and who feel
1: yes, it's almost too successful, too beautiful. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, and I think it was especially in the seventies in, in Germany that was a, there was a lot of distrust of him. I suppose he was perceived as, as not being political enough in a kind of obvious kind of way as well. But I think it is more fundamentally a, a distrust of, of the virtuosity and of the power that the poems seem to exert. And I'm sure that most of the people who reject him, they reject him not because they just don't have, a, don't have any response, but because they have too, too strong a response of some kind. Right, right. Uh, I think that's pretty clear from what, pe- what people have said. I don't know but there is something very interesting about Hulke. I mean sometimes he's accused of kind of touching on kind of kitsch and there is definitely a side to his writing which you might call it call kind of precious or it's kind of flirting with the precious all the time. And it, and so but then a positive way of thinking about that is that he's you know he's experimenting. He's he's on the edge of something. So he's is out, outside what we're familiar and comfortable with. The kind of way that he's his way of being outside that is to be towards the yeah an interest in sensation, in sense, somehow sensation and intensity being good in themselves, irrespective of what sort of content they might have. And so there's good reasons to be suspect about, suspicious about that kind of thing. And, and you know, not all poems work either. There are some poems which clearly are kitschy or, or precious.
0: You have a very elegant way of in the book sort of <laughs> pointing out and in some way saying this is a bit kitschy, or he tried something here. This metaphor is really strained and overdone. But then you say, it appears to me he's trying to do this. Whether, right. it, work, whether it worked or not is really not my concern. It doesn't look so effective right here. But you give us a sense of this is, not, um, this. is never experimentation for its own sake. There's no. always something at stake. Yeah. So yeah. I think that gives exactly. his work this urgency that people feel even when he Pushes a metaphor too far, or you think, mm-hmm. or this is in German. Sometimes you hear it. Lou Andreas-Salomé said to him when he was very young, "You rhyme way too much. You, yeah. have, to, you have to tone it down. Yes. Is, you're just going on and on." And he could just do that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a, a dressmaker yeah, yeah. puts too many frills and you know ruffles yes. onto a dress. He could simplify the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But in these moments, he's still uh, he's still trying to do something, and it's. Mm. not ever in my sense he's after something but he's just in something he's in this poem he wants to go deeper into the poem he never wants to take you out
1: of it no yeah I, i think that's right and and he's not thinking about things like taste when he's in that you know doing that He's, he's exploring what possibilities the language sort of holds and what, where he, what he can do, what, where it can take him at a particular time. And that's you know as readers that's also. and I think it's probably also true. I mean I can't think of an example exactly, but I think it must be true that even the more doubtful parts, you could respond to them differently in different times. So you you know you might feel on one day you might feel well, I can't you know, I'm not going to um, suspend my disbelief to this extent. Other days you might be more disposed towards them and kind of and more open to what's going on. It comes down to that he's taking risks with with language and what you can do, what you can what you can sort of get away with. Though he doesn't think it was getting away, but that's sort of how it looks from outside. And so there's bound to be failures or, or moments that are doubtful. But it's all to do with you know in the end what he's doing, I suppose, is is trying to get more of human experience into language. And that's not something you can do with a kind of, you know, you just know how to do it and just surely do it. It may feel like that sometimes in particular poems, but actually it's always gonna be exploratory and so always uh, have the possibility of of not quite working.
0: I was Um, thinking when you were saying that right now, I was thinking whether there is an equivalent or actually whether there's a poet who has, Mm. A certainty in his own work. In the German yeah. tradition, there are moments in Goethe. Way probably has some certainty. Then yeah. there moments. But I was thinking of Shakespeare's sonnets, mm. that that are just an object of fascination. I think because they seem to start again in new places with a kind of excitement. We're going to start here. I'm going to start here. I'm going to yes. start here. Yes. Where some some of the great plays, there's a certainty and a surety that he knows what language is do, can do. Yeah. The sonnets, language is kind of let loose. Language can do certain things. It has yeah. effects, it has an effect or something, and then you move on rather than it's mm. in the service of this grand idea, this greater idea. And that's why Wilke is probably ultimately known more, although you talk about the, the novel Malta, he's more of a poet because poetry allows these kinds of starting
1: over and over again. And that's that's completely you know, part of his understanding of poetry, especially in the on the sonnets to the whole thing about poetry is it sort of ends so that it can start again, and you're always a sort of beginning again. Okay. And, you know, you've got these 55 sonnets and they're all just metrically different. And he wasn't, as far as you can tell, he wasn't deliberately saying, right, I mustn't repeat this form here, this pattern here. He can't have been because he wrote it all so quickly. But it seems that he's constitutionally unable to do the same thing twice, and that must go with this sort of yeah, belief in the importance of, of beginning.
0: And you, you pay a lot of attention to beginnings in the early part of your book. You look at the beginnings mm. of the poem cycles, the several yeah. cycles of poems. Mm. Can I ask you... I have two specific questions, then yeah. our listeners have to bear with me because that's why I'm really interested in Rilke. So mm. this this uh, um, idea of hard work or work, which you talk about a bit in kind of the middle, there's a period in Rilke's yeah. life and work where people have constructed this a bit of a, there's an intensification or a change from the early mm-hmm. of poems, let's say 1914-15. Yeah, he's he's now being kicked out of Paris, where he had settled and found something closer to a home. He's in Munich, waiting for the draft notice, and he writes this poem to Lou Andrea salome It's trans- translated either as turning point, I think it's Wendung. I would assume it could also be just transition or turning, not a point. Mm-hmm. And there he has this very well-known for Wilke critics line, mm-hmm. like I've looked at the world long enough. Now I have to do hard work. Like H yeah. A R a T, work Herzwerk.
1: Hmm.
0: Could you say something about this? Because I'm really interested in what this is supposed to do, what this transition is, giving up something and doing something else here. It's not quite a transition, as you point out.
1: I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of, the, of the sort of prominence this poem has been yes. given as, as, <laughs> as um, denoting a shift in his right. work. I mean, clearly the idea that he's, yeah, he's going away from that des Gizit, so kind of work of, kind of looking, which he's he's... You know, everyone thinks he does that, especially in the Neugedichte, including Rücke himself. Um, and then Herzlack would be somehow processing these images rather than within in some way. I suppose it anticipates this interest in the invisible, which we get later on in the elegies. If you look at the Neugedichte, then it's the new poems, it's pretty clear that he's doing, you know, both heart work and work of looking at the same time there. And I think, in a way, he's, sensed, he, he's telling himself in this poem, Wendung, that he needs to move on, which is really what he's doing. Thurn und Herzberg, so do her artwork now, is sort of an artificial way of constructing a new phase for himself, sort of helping himself move onwards. But actually, he doesn't then do something radically different. He does then explore more a kind of poetic tradition as opposed to a tradition in the visual arts, I think. He starts reading a lot more German. That's also interesting. So it's then that he reads Hauderlin properly and and Beuter and and other writers, Expressionists and so on, whereas before he was very much writing as a poet, really in the French tradition, above all Baudelaire, and then French visual artists. There is a a shift of a sort, which I think in his work, translates into a a greater focus on the means of poetry itself and language and what, what can be done in words specifically as against what other art forms can do? In the end, any poetry, any yeah, any kind of mental activity involves Beck and always did for, for Hilda too. I think
0: there's such prominence given to this term, and you say mm. rightly, it it doesn't mean there's really a break, a shift. We go to this mm. new phase here, but there's more of a maybe continuity that that he wanted to imply. And this poem is also, as you say, a little bit you say over deliberate. It's maybe a little bit programmatic, mm. but it's a I'm not sure if all mental activity is Herzwerk in real sense. No. He, he does think yeah. somehow we can go through the world, we can be super attentive, we can also be very skillful poets, even have all these technical, this technical facility, yeah. and yet end up writing something that isn't that hasn't yeah. genuinely be the English word is "process." It's a horrible word for what Wilkes is trying to say, like as a computer mm. or something like that. That's not yeah. what it is. It's not, we're right. not processing information. We're actually making it our own, understanding yeah. it will not stay our own yes. and maintaining both the awareness that we had this experience, but it isn't mm. ours because it's already passed. This weird sense yeah. of temporality. I would just love to hear a little bit more yeah. what you say saying, And I understand your skepticism because it's not the term that really defines Wilkes' program, but it's mm it touches on something also because it goes to this bodily metaphor, which I think it's not... Well, wrong, yeah,
1: you and know. that's what I was sort of going to say. I mean, the thing about hearts and the way he uses the word heart very often seems to be as a sort of way... Obviously, you know, he knew very well that the heart isn't literally involved. And um, and what he means by heart partly is, is I think, when all the senses, including the, the sort of spiritual senses, are involved at the same time. So it goes towards this sense of kind of concentration and intensity and involvement of the whole mind and body um, at once, I think. I think, in the, in the end, that's what Herzberg comes to. And so I suppose what that means, then if we're thinking about the move from Gesicht to, well, work of looking to the work of the heart, then we're going from something which is really depends just on one sense or a very small subsection of what's available to something much more compact which involves the whole person in the widest sense, and of course, what that means then is it kind of you know making use of all that humans have at their have available for them to them. And so again, one can think about it in relation to the elegies, I suppose, because in the, in the elegies start off by really lamenting the human failings, which then later on come to be seen or is able possible to see them the strengths, and precisely because they of this in betweenness that you're you're kind of you're physically in the world but at the same time you're detached from the world because of your consciousness and that if you start thinking about it always nearly always seems to be a problem but if you somehow manage to kind of just live it then it, you, you realize that that's what makes the human situation sort of unique and so i suppose hertzberg yeah i mean you could say that the, the angels can't do Herzberg and the animals can't do Herzberg but but human beings can he also uses um I mean, Hertz involves also the sort of the, the kind of sensual sides. I mean, the, the 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 sexuality as well is clearly part of it. I mean, I think that's very interesting part of Rydke that isn't spoken about so much, and I do try and talk about a bit in my book, the, the way in which the, the kind of erotic or sexual response to the world is something we shouldn't sort of deny or sort of overlook. It's very much part of how we do respond to the world. And we're not giving a full account of that if we, if we neglect it. And he hasn't, that's not quite what he's naming consciously with Hertzberg at that point, but it's what it develops into, I think.
0: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I think that's really nice that you just yeah. pointed that out. I was going to ask you about that. So you said there's the kind of visual experience of the world. It's a great artist and let's say in 19-teens mm. or something like that, his mm. models are also wrote down, which is not just visual, but also three-dimensional sculptural in the world. Rodell, this over-sexualized being, mm-hmm. this kind of gruff, huge man, which is really interesting, and Rilke spends so much time yes. with him, and yeah, it's yeah. so because mm. he's so different from Rilke at that yes. time. You think Rilke is this kind of hesitating, skittish mm-hmm. poet, and Rodell is this overwhelming masculinity. And then he said there's a spiritual dimension, and I think if we sort of open this up, there's a kind of intellectual dimension, the aesthetic yeah. experience of the world is seeing it. Then he says Herzberg mm-hmm. now starts to involve a spiritual dimension, which I think critics have been really good to not talk about by calling it existentialist and then yeah. having, a, having a very, and I think there's a very brilliant set of readings that go mm. on through the century of the kind of Rilke as an existentialist, proto-existentialist, which people don't want to call it spiritual because that's not a word mm. we use in academia, kind of. And then the yeah. bodily, sexual, he says he writes these phallic poems right afterwards. They're very mm. famous. And also in a weird way, still, as you said, There's a kind of unease because we want our Rilke to sort of make us live in a world that's a bit purified. And here I think Rilke says there's nothing any longer abstracted, purified, refined about the world. Once you do this herzwerk, you're fully in the world, including your desires, your drives. Yes, exactly. So it's not... You arrive in some realm of the elegies where you can outdo our mortal existence. You actually just know how hard it is to be a physical human being that has a mind that wants to separate from the body and have sexual and other desires that we can't even transcend or sublimate. So all these dimensions are kind of coming into it here, what he calls Herzwerk, not just you go from
1: seeing things to... exactly. I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's sort of, he comes in some ways from Nietzsche, I suppose, this sense that you have to face up to all aspects of the world, which also means all aspects of yourself. They're all involved, so if you pretend they're not, then you're just, you're just deceiving yourself, you're just missing out on what's actually going on. So to try and give a fuller account of the kind of breadth of experience, I think is, in a way, that's what Luca's doing, really. And yeah, is he's, is he's a shift towards it.
0: If I can ask you another question, so let's say if we think of Herzwerk or hard work as kind of a deeper, more of an opening to how we are in the world already. Mm. Nothing is added to it. We're just becoming a bit more awakened to how we are already. So Wilke never says, oh, you're going to reach this transcendent state. He says, you're just going to be reminded of where you already are. Yeah, And then the poem that I you talk about the requiems in a very beautiful way and the elegies. Um, And then there's a poem called Death. He has several poems on death. And I was Mm. quite interested in whether this can do the work of letting us account for the knowledge and the experience of death or of losing somebody or something and not be just torn back out of life into grief and numbness and removal, but in Rilke's way to say, oh, this will put you more deeply into life. And I think this is the, to me, this becomes one of the big questions for the for elegies the and for these works afterwards, that Herzberg is supposed to do this incredible thing that we're supposed to get a bit more comfortable with the fact that we will not last. Der Tod, da steht der Tod, ein bläulicher Absurd in einer Tasse ohne Untersatz. There stands death, some bluish dregs in a cup without a saucer. Such a strange place for a cup, standing on the back of a hand. Quite clearly, you can make out on the glazed curve the spot where the handle broke off, dusty, and hope across its bow, in a used-up Gothic script. The man who was to drink out of that cup read this aloud at breakfast long ago. What kind of beings are they then, who finally must be scared away by poison? Otherwise would they stay here? Are they really obsessed with this food full of obstacles? The hard present moment must be pulled out of them like a set of false teeth. Then they babble, babble, babble. O falling star, once seen into from a bridge, not to forget you, stand and endure.
1: And I think I certainly think you know bereavement anyway is an experience which does sort of place you back in life more kind of firmly in many ways. Of course, you know you've lost something which is 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 gone. Um, but it's gone in what sense? I mean, it's gone in some sense. But it's sort of the, the person by disappearing has in some sense become closer oddly, because you realise everything. About, of course, you know that's a big theme, though. That, you know, you only really really realise what things are worth once they've gone. I think he took that really quite seriously as being a sort of almost like a sort of a faculty that, you know, we, that's how we perceive things as as when, when they're gone, really. Uh, and that might be another example. That certainly is another sort of implication of what Herzberg is, I think. so. Because you can only see things which are actually there, but Herzberg, you can somehow connect with when they're no longer there and, and in some ways, perhaps better. So... I mean, I don't know. He doesn't talk, as far as I remember, he doesn't talk very much about specific instances of bereavement of his own. He's normally talking about other people's bereavement, oddly, and he doesn't talk very much at all about you know when his father dies or when his mother dies or anything like that. We hear nothing really. He obviously did have a number of bereavements. I mean, and he thought a lot about kind of what they meant. And I don't think he's you know he, he his notion that life and death really are a unity, and that dying has to be a form of of kind of Bringing your life to perfection in some way, or kind of bringing it to its highest point, that can sound very abstract and sort of all very well, rather kind of theoretical, but not actually very helpful. But I don't think that's at all what he meant, really. I think he he, he was actually trying to be quite honest about the fact that the experience of bereavement does oddly kind of anchor you more deeply in the world. So I'm not really answering your question, probably. No, um,
0: I'm. I'm really. Let me just stay there because I'm really. Um, it's a genuine question. It's not mm. a sort of there's yeah. answer in welcome, but what you said that he wants to have us experience bereavement, not as removal out of life as a kind yeah. of numb, what I experienced sort of, we've all of it, our experiences of loss of not being fully in life, not being full of life or being too sensitized. Mm. that we think I don't want anything exciting to happen, good or bad, because I'm so fragile or exposed and I can't handle that. And Rilke, sort of what you're saying, he said, if we allow ourselves to acknowledge that that is part of life and not the Mm. opposite of life. Yes. And yet then he stops short of saying Oh, and that'll console you for your loss. He said the word mm-hmm. consolation is not in his vocabulary. He said mm-hmm. this is not a word. I said there's nothing. Time will just put things in their place. Yes. But I'm, yeah. I'm interested in what you think when the poems, why they work for people at some moments, not always. No. But there, there is a moment when I think when you look up, as we said in the beginning of this conversation mm-hmm. from a poem, and you think, how oh, maybe I'm not alone in this. And I think that's an important part. Not that I've been consoled over this, but... I understand this as part of life in general.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, you know, there are a number of, of experiences, I suppose extreme experiences of different kinds that to take us out of life and basically Rico is suggesting that, that, that in fact they do the opposite. And of course it's partly a question of understanding really just how we talk about these things. If we think of sort of our normal everyday lives as being the sum of what life is, then of course you do feel estranged from that. But then if you think that the everyday life, not not to discount the nature of everyday life at all, but it involves quite a lot of avoiding, because you have to avoid larger questions and and, and sort of larger connections in order to kind of get through, you know, a normal day. If you think of, yeah, those things are things which you kind of need, but there are times when you're able to put them to one side, for a moment, probably only, then these extreme experiences like, you know, like death and, and falling in love and other things he mentions, as you say, do kind of bring you deeper in. I mean, his general attitude to, or his general kind of position on, on, on death in in sort of early 20th century Europe is that it's being pushed out to the margins. People are made to die as if in factories, as he puts it in Malta. And we're, we're coping with modernity by um, basically repressing death and, and getting it out of our immediate area of um experience which of course is very much what's happened you know we don't tend to know if the next door neighbors died really um whatever it might be it's 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 all kind of very clinical and 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 hushed up in most most cultures and he's saying that if you do that then you you kind of make some you make a kind of monster out of death really you make some terrible thing out there which is always sort of um, somehow threatening from outside where of course it's not really out there at all it's actually part of us it's a physical part of our of our makeup and the, the poem you mentioned, um, one of the ones called "Death or Death Court," he, he talks about um, the way we've effectively taken the teeth out of death and made it into they made it into this kind of babbling kind of monster, which can't articulate anything clear to us. Or We've turned it into a residue, as opposed to a sort of cup of something nourishing. It's, this is this is exactly an example of the kind of thing we were talking earlier where we were talking about kind of kitsch and preciousness, because these kind of thoughts they can seem too easily stated and, and and thus not very useful
0: if we can, if i can ask this poem which i yeah. sort of return to because of your book and it's just such a f- fabulous poem. when i'm using this yeah. i use this word deliberately because it's so over the top in the beginning of this yes. of the death as the kind of residue in the in the cup that says hope yeah. on it some cheesy cup you picked up somewhere and it's balancing on the back of a hand and yeah. so the, the image just keeps on getting more and more Then it says it's at the end it's just babbling yeah. and then there's this dotted line in the poem and i put this in the notes of this podcast and then yeah. there are three more lines and in some ways also for our you know listeners who should not walk away thinking oh rilke is a poet about that it's a poet yeah. about lo- love ultimately when you said a moment ago they are experiences in life that are, that seem to take us out of life, but should actually put us more deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Death may be one, love is the other one for Wilke, over yeah. and over the image. So mm. those last three lines, which I just find, and I, I was giving a talk on Wilke recently, and I, I looked at these but, lines, and I thought, it partly prompted by your book, because it's such a beautiful reading. And I thought, so then he Stands on this bridge. It's clearly night because there's a shooting star or a falling mm. star. And yep. then he says, in the beginning, the cup stands on the back of the hand. And now he says, you're supposed to stand up or yeah. shame, which mm-hmm. is very real. So at the end of the archaic uh, Torso of Apollo, you must change your life, is imperative. But yes. stand up or standing up, which is very odd in a poem about death yeah when it's all about falling and, and what you said he wants to actually have us a, a moment where we would not see these relations as gain and loss up and down yeah rising and falling for a brief moment and i was really curious why, how you make sense of these three lines because it's to me such a incredibly romantic beautiful moment and i was talking to students and i said who wouldn't want to stand on a bridge and see a shooting star reflected mm-hmm. in the reflected in the water and i tried to explain to them we're implying that it's nighttime. He doesn't say nighttime, we just think stars, you see them at night. We're implying it goes over over water because it's a bridge, mostly over water, probably over a river in Ronda or in Paris or in Venice, wherever he was. And so I'm kind of curious how you make sense of these three lines, because mm. they're not redemption, but there's kind of, here's death, this horrible graphic, yes, cruel thing, and then dot, 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 this other thing is there.
1: Well, it does seem in, in the dynamics of the poem. It does seem as as if those final lines must, in somehow, you know, if the poem is to work, they must, in some sense, kind of counterbalance what's gone before. Not just the content of the kind of the, the, the kind of babbling death, but also the the kind of extreme sort of surreal kind of grotesqueness of some of the images. Where right. you know, it's it's, it's it's incredible stuff, but it's also we can't live with that. It's it, it's right. sort of. Various and and choppy and and unattractive, I suppose even. And then you have somehow these fast three lines have to be able to kind of stand up against all that and somehow balance it out in some way. But I think there's also a sort of um, a kind of hidden argument going on in that the falling star, you know, a shooting star is a star which is well, it's not even a proper star, but it, you know, it's a it's something which is burning itself out and so it's something which is dying and of course it's as it dies that that it becomes what it is i.e., a shooting star it's only a shooting star for for the 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 moment of our seeing it and for the moment of it disappearing and so death and life are held in one in that image aren't they they're the same thing and i think that's sort of what that's why he says never forget it's the kind of reminder that they can't actually be separated in the end so the poem is is kind of correcting itself really for its for its almost for its um its weakness in dwelling too much on death as something grotesque. Although it's criticising at the same time, it's also, of course, doing it itself. And and then there's this dot, 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 this kind of open line. We don't know what that is, but it's a break of some kind. And then just the hope that an image can can somehow counterbalance all that. And it is, above all, as you say, an image of standing on the bridge and seeing the thing. And, of course, yeah, and, and I mean, I think, you know, there are a number of, of experiences... I suppose extreme experiences of the different kinds that to take us out of life, and basically Renko is suggesting that that they, in fact they do the opposite. Experience and, and, and
0: I thought two two additional things. I would be curious what you think about that. When this, the first part, which you said, has to be balanced out in a way, otherwise mm-hmm. we're left with this horrifying fragmented images yeah. of death. This line dot 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 dot. I thought that's the water the horizon right. line, where the poem is reflecting itself. And yeah. you can say that's a kind of a gimmick, and it's just kind of, and I, I've seen translations that omit that line, and I think, well, you missed the point of the poem. This is a bridge, <laughs> yes. and there's above yeah. and below, and yes. all of the poem is, the performance. Is actually just doing what it's saying. Yeah. and some critics would say well here you go rilke again kind of tricking us into sensing mm. this doubleness and sensing the symmetry and feeling it more because a lot of things we just said we have to infer which yeah. rilke kind of telegraphs to us like shooting star on a bridge seen once you and then there's this is kind of addressed dich nicht vergessen and yeah. i think and i wonder how you make sense of this last line dich nicht vergessen what who who is the who is he addressing at that moment
1: yeah, I did. When I actually saw that in my book, I was worried it might be a misprint, but it's not, is it? Then it is <laughs> dich nicht vergessen. I think so. That, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. I think that's probably. Um, I suppose is. I mean, I suppose the most obvious one is the Sternenfall, isn't it? It's U uh, Sternenfall, so the U uh, implies yeah. the address, and right, is, is right. yes, I think it's the Sternenfall. It's that moment, and of course, remembering that particular moment, which is implicitly a moment in his own life, does mean that you know that we have to hold on to our experience. Right. And and allow our individual experience to be as powerful as this kind of realization of what is happening to death in, in the modern age and how Christianity has failed to sort of deal with it properly, which is implicitly what the poem is saying. I and mean, I think also very interesting, the last word stein, yeah. That brings us back to what you're saying before about the the, the sort of um simultaneity of the aesthetic and, and the existential or the ethic. Because of course stein is above all a kind of existential sort of um, imperative, you know, stand up to it, don't succumb, but at the same time, it's also something he's imploring the poem to do, urging the poem itself right. to do, right it has to have that sort of power of offsetting um, oh, right, right, um, negative. And so it's, yeah, it's that, it's both those things. Oh, but
0: that's nice, right? Because in German, yeah. it would be the, the poem sort of stands on the page or something. The word yeah, stands. Exactly. Yeah, it's, like, right. it's like, it's like typesetting for us or something like that. It's a regular right. word yes. you would use. Yes. Yeah,
1: exactly. yeah, there's like yeah. A, word, a
0: words words written yeah. on a page. That would be, yes. it, st- it stands written. So it's like a yes, poem. Exactly. And, and and I wonder, I'll ask you what, about this, um not to forget you. I also wonder whether this is another one of Rilke's effective tricks he's also at this moment turned out of the poem toward you toward the reader which the reader you hear that so you think oh he's addressing the shooting star looking back reflecting on the past but he's also at that moment turned out of the poem and then i said to my Mm students because i i I do what you do essentially in your book you sort of you have to re-experience a poem each time and this last Mm -hmm. time i taught it i thought Who wouldn't want to stand on a bridge and see a shooting star reflected in the water, which is a one-time occurrence of a moment that you just described as the death of the star, which is its only life for us and gives us Mm. light at that moment. And to share that with someone Mm. would be so magical because it only happens then and there. You're in this here and now of that moment and you could say to somebody, and we all had this experience, to look at shooting scars and say, "Oh, did you see this one? Did you see yes. this one?"
1: Yes, and they never have.
0: <laughs> and exactly, yes. but, but <laughs> yes, there's, for Wilke, I think a profound mm. happiness. And if someone says,
1: "Oh, yes, 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 I saw that one," yeah, yeah. No, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the Hinker's use of do indeed and so the you words are—they're really fascinating. I think, but but there's always one possibility. Always is of quite a strong possibility is, is addressing the reader in some way, right? right? And it's one of the ways in which the poems do. That's another reason for their popularity. We do feel kind of addressed and and drawn in and of course some people like that and some people don't like that they feel it's too sort of too forward too close and they they, which goes back to what we're saying before about the (laughs) sort of distrust I mean I think here is actually probably a little bit harder to read it in that way than in other places but it's still it's still it's still clearly a possibility yeah.
0: yeah yeah and I think you're right it's it's harder to do it it's where Rilke I think is so exciting to read because it works on the, this is an, a totally wrong word on a subliminal level. You just mm. see the word dish and you feel, oh, uh, okay. But mm. you don't you know it's not you being addressed. Mm. So there are lots of things happening happening on the level of sound or they just capture something mm. that's not explicit. And you can't really build an entire argument here. So oh you know you could write an academic paper, the second mm. person's address in Rilke and, and someone said like, this is not the right one. But the word is there so the word yeah does, yeah, yeah you know the word also does... it's
1: underwritten by lots of other instances in Ruka where clearly is the case i mean obviously the end of the archaic tours of apology you must change your life that clearly right. does address the reader as well right. as the poet addressing himself and so the and i do and i say i mean i do think that's actually a, a way of summing up in a in a rather kind of oversimple way what i'm trying to do in the book is to, to try, take that idea seriously as if all the poems in a way were saying you must and um, But of course, much less explicitly and and not necessarily even believing that that can happen. But still, there's that kind of injunction that inhabits them. And stein is exactly the same, really.
0: And as you said earlier, it's a kind of summons to change your life without a program, which means yeah. everybody... Yeah, that's is, very important, yeah. Like you kind of mm. cast yeah. back, back on yourself, say, like, mm. you, Charlie, you have to change your life in a very different way from how I have to change my life. So there's no, pro, and I think Rilke occasionally succumbs to these programs. So yes, he's embarrassing, awkward political moments when he embraces, which other people, Martin Buber, Thomas Mann celebrate the war in 1914, Karl Krauss doesn't. Thank God we have a few people who don't actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think he says, he addresses the reader and then kind of says, okay, and now I'm discharging you into your own responsibility of having had this experience
1: with me of this poem mm. but you're on your own and that's yeah, I think no, kind def- of yeah definitely yeah no I think that's very true I mean there's yes again there's sort of no specific content but there's a kind of movement a kind of impulse which comes from the poem because I think you know that the, you must change your life at the end of the archaic torso of Apollo poem of course you know you must change your life on its own is a completely empty statement to say I mean it's the worst thing you should say to anybody who wants to if you want them to change their lives really. Right. but somehow the way it's placed within the poem and the way it, it kind of grows out of the experience of of the statue on the one hand and the poem on the other makes it more sort of credible. it gives it more force right And I think a lot of Rika poems have a similar sort of um, pattern to them. I suppose it's basically because of the kind of intensity with which they have responded to the world and they sort of give you a desire to emulate that kind of intensity. And that sort of tension, as you said earlier, kind of tintedness.
0: Yeah, and in there, um, what, what you just said made me think in the archaic Apollo, the Torso of Apollo, that poem centers on this empty, there's an empty center somehow, was. which we all know. The sculpture has no head, there's a kind of empty centering, and then all yeah. this stuff happens. You must change your life as if you have to place yourself, you can place yourself into this empty center of signification.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right, and it's also a confrontation with some sort of trace from a former life, you know, an ancient, an, an ancient form, which somehow carries a kind of conviction with it, which implicitly um, your life doesn't seem to have at that moment. Reading the poem, right. Right. and it's out of the contrast that you then um, gain the the desire to to live your life. I mean, we've
0: we've touched on one poem exactly so far, so. We could do a couple of more hours of this um, yes the the one thing i would um love to ask you you know i hope you're translating the sonnets to orpheus and the elegies into english uh i i think if you have some spare time or something that would be a great right. project because i love all the translations in the book and right well that's
1: good yeah i mean I'm not. <laughs> I mean, apart from the, insofar as they're in the book, I mean, right. there are there are really good translations available of the, certainly the Sonnets to Orpheus. I mean, yeah. So Don Don Paston's versions of those, I think, are very good indeed. The Elegies, I'm not so sure if there's a really good version of the Elegies, but I don't know if I can do it though. <laughs> um, it's not,
0: it's yeah. interesting. I think there's, uh, on some level, sometimes it's just a matter of tone and translation and the given mm-hmm. translator. And some moments in the Elegies, though, because when you start teaching them, you have to do it very slowly and you realize mm. there's some slight errors in the translation that have now been mm. passed through dozens of translations. Yeah, that's very
1: possible. Yeah. I haven't looked at them, you know, really carefully, I must say.
0: Yeah, I. Um, but you're lucky. I mean, we're lucky we can look at it in two languages. So it's different in a way. Yeah. I think if someone is really coming from an English perspective. No,
1: sure. Yeah.
0: So, I, I, I want to thank you for this conversation. And I really want to just say uh, thank you for giving us this book, which also for our listeners it has a great index. So, people who just read Wilke on a, you know, whatever personal basis, you can just look up a poem and see where Charlie, how Charlie made sense of it, which I think is part of the joy of this book to see you made sense of it in a particular way. Hmm. That is maybe also what Wilke wanted. That deepens our experience of the one poem because we have another experience of
1: it. Well, thanks very much to you, Lee. That's been a great conversation. It's been very kind of you to, to you know, ask me to come along. So,
0: oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very it's nice won- to meet you It's well. wonderful. And yeah. it's, it's nice to meet you. That's true, yeah. Um, sure. yeah. I ho- hope we have an occasion at some point to speak in person. And then I just... You know, yeah, to you know, you to, on this, to our listeners, so this will be... This is part of a long series. I think that we have 50 episodes now on great books, uh, everything from... Uh, Ralph Ellison, to Zora Hurston, to Paul Celan, to Rilke, so people Mm -hmm. can tune in, Uh, they can find it on my website, all the episodes are there, they're on Spotify, Apple, etc. And I've put some notes into the website for this episode, so uh, people can look up your work. So again, Mm -hmm. I'll remind them this was a conversation with Professor Charlie Lau, who's at Oxford University, Uh, so thank you so much, and he's the author of Rilke, The Life of the Work, which is a book that all the readers should try to get in their hands up.